0: Hey, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Rock in Retrospect. I'm your host, Nick Bambeck. Today, my special guest is Wes Gabrielson, who is an educator from Portland, Oregon, who teaches a rock music history class. He was a former guest on my friend Eric and Mary's podcast, Hall Watchers, last year, and also serves as a member of the nomination committee for the ongoing Rock Hall Reconsidered Project. Um, He's very friendly, he's very smart, and he's a passionate fan of classic rock. Um, How are you doing tonight, Wes?
1: I'm doing great, Nick. Thanks for having me. How are you?
0: Good. How are you?
1: I am doing great. Ready to talk about some music.
0: Absolutely. We're looking forward to talking about this band that you chose. We're talking about Toto tonight. Now, Toto is a band that I know in the Rock Hall Reconsidered Project that you've been pushing for. And I'm really curious to hear your thoughts about this iconic band of the late 70s and early 80s that you could still hear their music today in so many facets of popular culture.
1: Yeah, definitely. It's a band that has caught my interest in the last few years. I've really been excited to learn a bit more about them and talk about them with you. So I look forward to this.
0: Great! I'm definitely looking forward to, to it too. And thank you so much for coming on the show. Now, when did you first discover Toto?
1: So um, I kind of had what I call a music rebirth when I was in college. Growing up, I listened to a lot of music from the '60s and '70s, things that my parents listened to when they were kids. And uh, I had a roommate in college who really got me into some more classic rock. And when I was in college, I remember hearing the two of Toto's uh, more famous songs. Africa and hold the line and those were just songs that really caught my attention because of how unique they are. And then as a as a school teacher, I was a history teacher, a social studies teacher, really passionate about teaching social studies, but also trying to combine my love for music and music history uh, in a classroom setting. And so I actually created and taught a history of rock and roll class. And during my research for that class, I learned more about Toto, not just their career, but their session work. And you know, a lot of people think about the Wrecking Crew of the 1960s with artists like you know Hal Blaine and Earl Palmer and Carol Kaye and Glenn Campbell, Leon Russell that played on all these hits. Well, I kind of have equated Toto to the mid to late 70s and and 80s version of the Wrecking Crew. So. Uh, both my my discovery in college and while preparing to teach my classes, when I really got into Toto.
0: Yeah, that's actually perfect that you've f- phrased them as the wrecking crew of the late 70s and throughout the 80s. Because one thing about Toto, and we're going to talk about this later, is that they are on so many iconic songs of that era. And you, you don't even realize it until you look in the credits. And even then, you're just like, oh my goodness, that's Steve Lucafer. That's Jeff Picardo. Like, it's, it's amazing.
1: It's amazing. And I know we'll get into this later, but the, the work that really would uh, blow my students' minds when they thought about it was the work of Toto on Michael Jackson's most famous album, Thriller. A lot of the students were just blown away and said, wait, the, the band that did Africa played behind Michael Jackson. <laughs> and, and, and as we'll get into tonight, the the tentacles that reach throughout rock in the 70s and 80s is is far greater than just Michael Jackson.
0: Oh, definitely. And I'm just going to share too with the audience the first time that I remember discovering Toto. I think this, this is actually a really funny story. I was at a party. And you know, they had like those karaoke machines in the 90s and they would play and then they would have like songs you put in. I remember very specifically that they had Africa as one of the songs. And it just made me laugh to to remember that. But I, I do remember Africa being one of the songs that the people were singing along to at a birthday party in like the mid to late 90s.
1: That's awesome. I think that's the one song that I think my students would recognize more than any other of their songs is africa because it's everywhere right tv and movies and 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 games and all sorts of places
0: yeah and it's such a bombastic song in a way like especially the chorus you just it's very melodramatic but it's also very you just let it all out almost when when you sing it so it's kind of like a perfect karaoke song and i just remember that and people were just so happy singing along to africa so west did you ever see toto in concert
1: Uh, You know, I've never seen them in person. I've always been amazed by their individual talent, you know, their groovy tracks, their musicianship, but I've never seen them. So I would love to see them at some point uh, before they stop performing.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah. I mean, they still tour. I know that the way that they make money now is by extensively touring. And I know that Steve is at least still in the band. So I think given everything, hopefully that they get back on the road so we could actually see Toto.
1: Yeah, that'd be great.
0: Definitely. I mean they're apparently a really good live band because in a way they're a musicians, musicians band like they are very proficient at their craft. I would have to think that they'd be really great live performers. So, you were talking a little bit about this before, but what is your connection to Toto and why are they important to you as a music fan?
1: Yeah, I think for me, it's the musicianship that I'm just drawn to. Again, it's their tentacles of reach as session musicians, but bringing that into their own idea for a band. And the three people that really stick out to me in their band with their musicianship that I followed their careers, studied on, Jeff Precaro, their drummer. I mean, uh, maybe other than Hal Blaine is probably the most has played on the most tracks and drum session tracks and rock history. And again, I don't have the stats there, but he's got to be towards the top. Steve Lukather, guitar player, also occasional singer. And then David Page with his uh, keyboard playing vocals as well. And so those, those artists I've just, like you mentioned earlier, are musicians, musicians, along with other people in the band. And, you know, getting into the research about them, I've just been fascinated with how far reaching their instrumental work has gone in their band or beyond. Uh, you know, I, I look at their first album, which was called Toto, right? 1978. Mm-hmm. And the thing that I always that also draws me to Toto is just the variety of genres that they bring into their music. Uh, they're not very one-dimensional or two-dimensional or three-dimensional i mean they it's it's kind of hard to describe what style they have because from track to track it's different i think about their first album you know the first song on there is called child's anthem and it's kind of this very in-your-face louder instrumental that kind of kicks off their career you have the next song i'll supply the love which is kind of a straightforward rock song then they jump into an R&B groove called Georgie Porgie, and it just, each track is so different. And so when I listened to their first album, it really fascinated me. There wasn't really a common thread between the songs. It was kind of an eclectic mix. And that really drew me into them as a band.
0: I agree, because that's, to me, the testament to how grave musicians they are, that It doesn't matter style or genre, they just play on whatever either interests them or whatever the musicians they're playing for asks of them. And I mean, it's amazing they could play hard rock, progressive rock, jazz, so many different styles, but yet still have a unique sound. That like once you hear it and then someone says to you, oh, Steve Lucafer or Jeff Picardo played on the song, that you can kind of sort of hear characteristics of their style that would come much later in in their career when they finally formed the band.
1: Mm -hmm. Definitely. I I feel like I hear, you know, something we haven't talked about yet, but, you know, one of their famous session works before they became a band was working with Boss Skaggs, right? Absolutely. Silk Degree's album, and when I hear a song like Georgie Porgie on their debut album, I can hear some of uh, of their work with Boss Skaggs in that song and vice versa. I guess, you know, not jumping to a different artist, but the other person that really sticks out in my mind where I can hear that person's style in their other work which is similar to what i hear when i listen to Toto and all these other songs is Nile Rogers. you know Ooh. hearing his work with Bowie and uh, Duran 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 these other artists you can hear that guitar sound right that he has with his famous hitmaker well i feel the same about Toto with Lukather with Procaro. it's that same drum shuffle we hear in Steely Dan we hear when he plays with Boss uh, Gag so it's pretty fascinating
0: yeah absolutely i think that with uh, Steve Lukather it's that distinctive sound with his guitar that once you hear it like Mal Rogers, it hits you and like you know exactly who it is. I think that's a gift that very few people have where their music is so distinctive like that and influential. Definitely. Now let's actually talk about their session work because I think that that's actually to me personally, the most interesting part of Toto's story. So they were famously all or the majority of them, at least the core members, they were all session musicians before they formed the band in the late 70s. So let's talk about which artists that they work with. We talked about a few of them, like Boss Sags and Steely Dan and um, a few others, but do any others stick out?
1: Yeah, well, you know, kind of stepping back for a second, when I look at the group coming together, the core members, like you said, uh, we talked about Jeff Porcaro on the drums, David Page, and then Steve Lukather had played as session musicians. What's amazing to think about is before Toto was formed in 1977, They played on some of these other tracks when they were in their late teens and early 20s. Mm -hmm. You know, you think about these refined studio musicians who are playing kind of after they establish a name for themselves as a solo artist typically, but they're kind of in the opposite end of things. They had grown up in Los Angeles. I know the three Porcaro brothers, actually, along with Jeff, you had Steve and Mike, and then uh, Lucather and, and David Page, they all, I believe, went to the same high school in Los Angeles or lived in the same community, and I think the way that they broke into the scene, musicians seen as studio musicians, was twofold. I think, number one, it was based on the fact that they were extremely talented musicians, but number two, as we find with a lot of professional musicians, is that for two of these, individuals, it was really a family affair. When you look at David Page, his father, Marty, was a very famous piano player, composer, kind of a jack-of-all-trades, who was connected with Mel Torme, actually. And, you know, some of that songwriting influence and composition he passed on to his son, David, who wrote or co-wrote really the main three songs in Toto's career with Africa Hold the Line, Rosanna. And then uh, the Porcaro's father, Joe, was a very famous uh, jazz drummer who actually contributed a bit to uh, some of the Toto work under their band name. So I think that was part of it. But in addition, uh, the musicianship of these young men was phenomenal. So we talked about Steely Dan. I have a personal favorite of Porcaro's. His drumming on the song Black Friday by Steely Dan just really stands out to me as incredible work and musicianship. You know, he and uh, his brother Steve, who played keys. And uh, David Page were pretty much the backing band for Boss Gags with Silk Degrees, you know, songs like Lido Shuffle and Lowdown, What Can I Say? But also, I know Porcaro played on music by Seals and Crofts and Three Dog Night, Joe Cocker, uh, Jackson Brown's The Pretender album, Carly Simon, some Holland and Oates. David Page played on some work by Cher, you know, the, the Jackson 5 when they were under the label The Jacksons. George Benson, Glenn Campbell. I mean, we could go on and on and on and on, right? It's really amazing.
0: It's literally like almost the entire Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in a weird way. Like just the sheer amount of talent, like Chicago – Aretha Franklin, Earth, & Fire uh, Pink Floyd, Diana Ross It's ridiculous, like 5,000 albums apparently between them all That's insane
1: it, It's insane and what what's really impressive to me is not just their pre-session work but as the band's going on these individuals are working on their songs and albums for their band Toto, then they're concurrently working on music for other artists We've talked about you know Thriller being the, the, the major one that people I think maybe associate with or, or know, but it's It's remarkable. I mean, if Jeff Porcaro played on so many of those tracks, I don't know if the guy ever slept.
0: Oh, I know. And then, like, it was to a point where you're just, how much time is in a day? And how, how does he do all this? And, and it's kind of like what we were saying before with the wrecking crew, where they're on so many works that they probably don't even know which ones that they're on sometimes. It's just, oh, I'm doing this session for this person and that person. And it's just crazy to think that one person or even a group of people could be on like 5,000 records.
1: But I also wonder how much of their songwriting and we hear about this with bands like the Beatles and others how much of Toto's work was created early on you know when they were Mm -hmm. in high school or, or dare I say even before that and had been kind of compiled and then finally released years later so it's amazing that they're recording all this stuff and they're probably writing at the same time as well it's just it's fascinating
0: the one that really surprised me, and I didn't know if you knew this, was that Steve Lukather co-wrote and played on George Benson's huge hit, Turn Your Love Around, yes. and he actually won a Grammy for that.
1: For- yeah, and I know that he co-wrote that with Jay Graydon, mm-hmm. who was guitar player who I know – again, I'm going to nerd out on my steely love for Steely Dan – but he played the solo on peg and then Bill Champlain from Chicago and Sons of Champlain so they all wrote that together and yeah and won a Grammy for it. I mean there was it was quite a good series of uh, Grammy award ceremonies for Steve Lukather in the early 80s let's just say that
0: to work in so many different styles and genres so effortlessly in kind of a short period of time it's just amazing the adaptability of these these core members. And like we were saying before, Wes, I think the three albums that really stick out with Toto's session work is, of course, Boss Ag's Silk D- uh, Degrees, Steely Dan's Pretzel Logic, and of course, Michael Jackson's Thriller. And I'm going to be honest, I listened to Lido Shuffle earlier today, and I swear that could have been a Toto song. Like it just sounds like a Toto song for for me. The way that he sings and the instrumentation, it's because they're like all on it in a weird way. I don't know if you had that same feeling about some of the songs on those three albums, but like that one just stuck out to me like a sore thumb.
1: Without a doubt, if you if you listen to the podcast here, if you go listen to Leto Shuffle, just like Nick has mentioned, and then you listen to child's anthem the first Mm -hmm. song they released from their album first album in 1978 it could be interchangeable in terms of how the keyboards were played i mean it sounds just like leto shuffle Mm -hmm. it's it's amazing it's oh well that's steve porcaro playing the keys oh okay that makes sense it's the same guy right
0: yeah I kind of like, it almost like when we, we, you don't think of it when you hear it, but when someone says it to you, you're like, oh, now I can't unsee that, or I can't unhear that. Mm-hmm. And, and, and then you think to yourself like, oh, that does sound like a lot like Toto, because it is pretty much <laughs> Toto, um, at least the, yeah. uh, quite a few members on Silk Degrees. And then Thriller, let's talk about Thriller for a second. So I didn't know this until researching the episode, and totally forgot about this, that Steve Bicaro co-wrote. Human Nature, which in my opinion, is Michael Jackson's, one of his best songs, if not probably my personal favorite, because I just think it's just such a sweet, simple, earnest song. But it, it just amazed me how much their fingerprints are on the production of Thriller.
1: It's insane. And and that song, I, I agree. It's one of, I feel like it's one of the most underrated songs by Michael Jackson, because it is so much different than a lot of his output on that album and other albums Uh, But, you know, The Girl Is Mine is another famous one Mm -hmm. that I know that Lukather had played guitar on. And I know there was an interview I saw of him talking about working where Quincy Jones calls him up. And, of course, he's thrilled to work with Quincy Jones. And then, (laughs) oh, we're going to work. You're going to work with Michael Jackson and Paul McCartney. And he goes, I'm in, you know, as a 25-year-old or, you know, someone in their early to mid-20s. Of course, you're going to be on that. And also... You know the song beat it I mean that's Lukather yes. on the, on the rhythm guitar, and I believe maybe a little bass work, but i might I might be incorrect on that and then of course we know Eddie van Halen's famous solo but but that's Lukather playing the guitar for for Michael Jackson
0: Eddie gets all the credit, but I think the the sounds of the guitars throughout the song like that his his guitar work is what we remember really
1: mm-hmm.
0: Like like Eddie comes in for the, like that one minute solo where however, however long the solo is that he does, but it's really Steve Lukather that has that driving force behind the guitar work behind "Beat It," and I that's like again like that's one of the most iconic songs of the eighties, and and it's just um he doesn't get any credit for it really because when you throw in Eddie Van Halen who. By The way they were, they were really good friends. I that's something else I didn't know until this episode. Were, yeah, not I don't even know about best friends, but they were very close. It's just amazing that he doesn't get any credit really because people think of, of Eddie,
1: sure. And I wonder too, I haven't done a, much of a deep dive into this, but I wonder how much. You know, credit was given on the actual albums because in the 70s and 80s, because I know in the 60s with Glenn Campbell and and Leon Russell and everyone in the Wrecking Crew, they weren't given credit on those albums when it came out. Now in today's world, uh, dare I bring up our our good friend there, Justin Bieber? But you know, he's he's a pretty talented drummer. If he were to play drums on someone's album, of course, it would say the artist featuring Justin Bieber. But back in the day, that wasn't the case in the 60s. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so I wonder how much credit they were given. I would hope by the 80s, they were given credit for their work. I'm not sure.
0: I would think so, because Toto was a name. Yes. So like, because I mean, this is even thriller, like they did, of course, hold the line. And they're just releasing Toto 4, which had Africa and Rosanna. So I would think that they would i think the problem is is that they're so integrated in it that you almost take them for granted
1: yeah and 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 one other thing that i i remember seeing and doing some research here as well is i actually saw an interview i don't know if you've seen this nick but i saw an interview and a and a, a guitar session for about 10 minutes between steve lukather and glenn campbell have you ever seen this no Oh, it's fascinating. So they get together and Lukather's an LA kid and a lot of the Wrecking Crew musician work was done in LA. So growing up, he's wanting to play guitar. He loves the Beatles and he's idolizing someone like Glenn Campbell, right? Who he sees (laughs) playing on TV with, you know, Jerry Reed and they're having these amazing guitar duels. So the two get together and this was, I believe, probably five or 10 years before Glenn Campbell, you know, was affected and got, you know, diagnosed with Alzheimer's and... It's the two of them talking back and forth and playing each other music, and Lukather just asking like a kid in a candy store, <laughs> asking Glenn Campbell, you know, so excited, all about, oh, did you play on this Beach Boys song? And did you play on the Birds? And did you play on Sinatra? And Campbell answering those questions. At the end of the interview, they shake hands. The production crew gives them a round of applause. And then Glenn Campbell turns to Lukather and he goes, "You know you're one of the best guitar guitar players in the world." And Lucather's just taken aback and he goes, "Can we do this over again? I want to keep hearing that over and over. So that just shows <laughs> you for someone who was of a generation older. Than Lukather, how much those artists like Glenn Campbell really respected Lukather, and I assume the other members of Toto as well. So, a pretty cool story.
0: Speaking of Toto, you know, after they formed the band, after they became established studio uh, session musicians, they formed the band together and Even when they recorded their debut album, they didn't really have a a name for their band quite yet. So they settled on the name Toto. So I'm really curious, Wes, if you know how they got their band name, because that's such a strange name in a way.
1: Yeah, well, I I did a little bit of research on it. And you know how things go where some people claim this is the reason this is a name or something. Uh, A couple of things that I found was that one person claimed that Porcaro wrote Toto on some of the recording tapes for their initial album that just distinguished them from other bands in the studio. I don't know if that's accurate. There was mention of reference of Toto, the the dog from The Wizard of Oz. (laughs) But the the one that I heard that I that I really thought was was pretty interesting was someone we haven't talked about. Um, their original bassist was a guy named David Huntgate, uh, mm-hmm. who later was replaced by, I believe, Mike Picaro, who became the bassist and obviously a brother of Jeff and Steve. And, and he mentioned that the the style of the band was, uh, he used a Latin phrase, "entoto," Toto, which mm-hmm. was Latin for all-encompassing. And I feel like that really illustrates, if that is true, that really illustrates the diversity of their style and, and session work, which we've, we've talked about, it's really hard to put them in a box of the, their progressive rock or their hard rock or their fusion rock. And, and w- whether he said that or not or referenced it, that makes sense, the most sense to me.
0: Yeah. And it, if you think about it, all encompassing, that could also mean total. So toto total yep. it kind of like like the total package in a way yeah i agree and i i really honestly wes i wanted to be a uh, dorothy's dog like that like that would be everything but i doubt that that's the reason because yeah. that would be too, i mean maybe they did because i know like in press interviews that they did in the early 80s they kind of like pranked a lot of like music journalists and reporters and just say like, Oh, yeah, it is the the Wizard of Oz. So like, it's kind of funny how they were playful revealing their name. And it's kind of unclear. I really think it's probably the Latin phrase for all encompassing.
1: Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting because Lukather loved, you know, you talk about the little teaser of letting the press kind of try to figure out what they're talking about. And that's very John Lennon-esque, which I yeah. know that Lukather loved the Beatles and Lennon, and that was very Lenin-like in terms of you know just his phrases and his outlandish. You know we're we're bigger than Jesus Christ and all these things. You know, anyways, it just I found it interesting.
0: Although it does sound silly because I know like Steve Lucafer in because inter- he's like very grump- grumpy in interviews. Not grumpy, but he's like he's just well. I'll, I'll be honest, he is kind of like a curmudgeon sometimes. Like when you are reading interviews and you're like, you know, like what? <laughs> um, and then you have to like read it twice and. <laughs> yeah it's just like he was like yeah that's a shitty band name and you're just like <laughs> you know but i mean it pays the bills he said so i think it's funny his interviews though he'll just say like curse words and he'll just be like i don't care like i think he like slammed another musician and it's gonna come to me in a minute who it was or like lou reed he was just like i like you lou as a as a um as a songwriter you're amazing but you should should you really be on a top guitar players list like no and he's like i respect you though and you're like backhanded compliment it's so funny
1: well i know when when rolling stone came out with their list of the you know their initial list of the top 100 greatest guitarists he was pretty vocal about not being on there and i think maybe that was the interview or the topic because i think lou reed was on there yeah and uh you know that could be a whole other (laughs) Rabbit hole we go down. But um, I think if you were to ask rock musicians who are within within the community, those those insights among musicians about who are the greatest guitarists and singers, I feel like is always a lot different than when a, a critic makes a list. And I'll leave it at that.
0: (laughs) Oh, I totally agree. Now, speaking of Rolling Stone, that's actually my next question I wanted to ask you is they were never critical favorites. We could just get that out of the way. Like Toto is a widely despised band by many music critics let's talk about their relationship especially with rolling stone magazine because it is a contemptuous one at best like it is the stuff of legends so let's talk about that Wes.
1: yeah i you know and i thought here being a big fan of another band rush i thought that they got a a, a raw deal from rolling stone but not compared to Toto. <laughs> there's there's a quote that i found by a rolling stone critic named don shuey <laughs> uh, talking about their, it's an interesting name, right? Talking about their debut album. And and here's how it reads uh, from the, this Rolling Stone critic. Toto is the kind of dull debut you'd <laughs> expect from a bunch of career session players. Now, taking a time out there, wow, that's a great first line if you don't like the band. And I find it interesting. They says a career s- session players. And I think they'd been playing as session musicians for maybe a year or two at that point. So that's how it starts. And then it gets more more juicy. It says Toto lacks at least two elements crucial to good rock. A singer and a writer. Wow. Three group members sing passably. A fourth, Bobby Kimball, is terrible and unfortunately the lead vocalist page is chief songwriter but most of his tunes are merely excuses for back to back instrumental solos toto is a band of skilled craftsmen without a mesmerizing mastermind prose comma but not no poetry
0: if that's not a burn i don't know what is that leaves a scar
1: what my my take my take on it is first of all i think that's pretty brutal For a group who's put out their first album, their first album ends up having a few hits, but from a well-respected group of musicians who are, A, trying to find their own way into their own band, right, in the musical world, and I feel what's really interesting, they talk about the two elements crucial to good rock, a singer and a writer. I feel like, you know, Bobby Kimball on some songs has has a pretty great soulful voice, and David Page and the Percaros are the writers who helped write hits for Bob Skaggs. Michael Jackson. Later on, I I just find it pretty ironic.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's definitely a element of critical snobbery that kind of taints Toto in the lens of. Many uh, music listeners because they're kind of like I don't want to say this if it's true, but it feels like like almost like a guilty pleasure kind of band, yes. in a weird way where it's like it's almost like Hall and Oates for a long time. Or mm-hmm. maybe I'm not supposed to like them, but I do like kind of like them, but I don't mm-hmm. like say it to other people. I don't know. That's just the way that I always view Toto. I will say, West, one of my favorite lines from a Rolling Stone review of. A Toto album is their review of Toto 4, and the reviewer calls that album Velveeta Orange Polyester Leisure
1: (laughs) Suit. Holy crap! I figured you were going to share that one too. That's brutal. (laughs) oh my gosh it's and and that's the album that won I think it was like five or six Grammys
0: it's insane it won Which, like all the awards <laughs> the big it's just, ones
1: it's it what's really interesting is there's this pretty significant division that we see here with Toto I'm gonna bring up rush as well where it seems like they didn't get a ton of critical acclaim, yet I remember listening to Rush, and people, you know, in college, I discovered that people were like, really like them, or, yeah, I didn't like it. I feel the same with Toto, but it's almost one of those things where they have a significant fan base, but the critics don't like them, and it's pretty rare to see that. Usually, when it comes to rock history, we see at least a little bit more of cohesion between the two groups, right, for a lot Mm -hmm. of artists. But, you know, I I mean, when you look at this initial, you know, going back to my quote, when you look at this initial or not my quote, it was what was his name? Mr. Shuey's quote, we'll say, you know, that that's that first album, as much as he criticized it, it was number nine on the, the album charts in the U.S. They were successful right away, even though they were eviscerated by the by Rolling Stone. It's number nine on the charts. You know, their first – they have three very – an eclectic mix of three songs that are all in the top 50. All Supply the Love was 45, Georgie Porgie was 48, and Hold the Line was number five on the 100 Billboard charts.
0: I, I think it, part of it is is that – and I, I think this is why that they're so despised by Rolling Stone magazine, is that they emerged right at the time that punk rock mm-hmm. was – Becoming more and more popular, right? So you had like the Sex Pistols, the Clash, all these iconic punk groups emerging at the same exact historical moment that Toto is. And with Toto, no offense to them, they look very uncool compared to the Sex Pistols. You can't compare the two. And I know that like Steve Lucifer said, it was like comparing a pickle to an orange. Like it just like it doesn't make sense. Like they're, they're, they're two opposite sides of the spectrum.
1: I, I 100% agree with you. I was going to bring up also the notion that they're debuting in an era where punk rock is taking off, both in America and across the pond in England, right? And new wave artists are debuting, but they come from the punk scene when you look at like the talking heads or the police who come from that punkish background and move into something else. So I completely agree with you, but I would wonder if it would be interesting to go back, ask individuals who were in punk bands, especially like The Clash, which were a little bit more eclectic uh, in their sound, especially later on, if they had a favorable view of a band like Toto. It'd be real interesting.
0: That would be interesting. Now, going back to their Rolling Stone relationship for a second. Now, they Toto famously is, I believe, and I'm, I don't want to be on the record, but I will go on the record and say they are the only band to turn down – being on the cover of Rolling Stone in 1982, because they felt that Rolling Stone didn't like them. They gave them really bad reviews. Like We read two reviews of their work that were trashing their work, and they felt like, why are we going to go on the cover of a magazine that belittles everything that we do? And it's really... Interesting what Steve Lucafer had to say. He said, well, they don't like us. We thought it was going to be a hatchet job. We were trying to make nice with everybody. It was such a long time ago. And then he basically went on to say that it got worse because we were a little swarmy about it. They were even swarmier. It created a bad vibe and it was a dumb career move that didn't help us in the long run.
1: Yeah, what I I really love about them as a band and their opinions is they didn't give a rip what critics thought about. No. They were just going to do what they do and use their stellar musicianship to create music that they enjoyed making. And yeah. you listen to some of their I'll call it 80s cheese, and I say that lovingly. Some of those tracks have that very soft element that maybe people dismiss But behind or underneath those songs and that sound was a group of rebels that really didn't care. And I'm going to make a big stretch here. But it's kind of like, and you may agree or disagree with me, since you're a Rock and Roll Hall of Fame follower, I kind of equate them to like Neil Diamond, where (laughs) Neil Diamond has this image where he's kind of has these somewhat crooner songs and... But the guy doesn't give a rip what people think. And when he famously got inducted into the Hall of Fame, he talked about, you know, uh, not I almost said Neil Simon, Paul Simon inducted him. And you know what I'm talking about? And Mm -hmm. and said, and said, I'm really surprised. Paul Simon says, why did it take so long for Neil Diamond to get in the Hall of Fame? I know the answer. And Diamond got in and he goes, people criticize me for doing that song with Barbara Streisand. (laughs) I do it with Barbara. She's the greatest F you. And everyone (laughs) thinks Neil Diamond has this like clean image, but he's kind of a rebel. And that's, I don't know. Do you think that's a bit of a stretch? There's, I think there's similar cases. I
0: I definitely think so because Neil Diamond, like Toto, it's just uncool, right? Like there's just, like we did a prior episode on Peter, Paul, and Mary with Mark. And I feel like it's that image that some people can't get around. And like with Toto, No offense to them. None of them really are like household names. The members themselves, like musicians, know who they are, and rabid rock fans, but not like you know across the board famous. They're kind of faceless to the eyes of many, but they're like the. They're just not cool. Like even like some of the songs that they sing, like their most famous ones, they're kind of corny and cheesy, just like Neil Diamond. But the corniness and cheesiness is also like the brilliance of someone like say, Neil Diamond because you can't have that much bravado and put all your heart and soul into writing and performing those songs without believing in yourself. And Diamond did every time he and performed songs. But I will say that he gets the last laugh because he wrote so many iconic songs and Mm. retrospectively i think a lot of people look back and say well yeah he wrote like i'm a believer and sweet caroline and like all these classics that are just part of the american songbook in many ways
1: these guys create this cheesy you know cheesy music by people that don't like them especially rolling stones crew and uh that could be said about a lot of amazing musical bands too, because let's face it. I like, I like reading some Rolling Stone articles, but there's some snobbery that goes into the the critiquing and oh, not definitely. just, but, but other, other bands. But um, you know, the other criticism that was mentioned was not having a real front man, mm-hmm. but I kind of think that's cool that there's this accumulation of great musicians. No one is a distinct lead. You know, they're kind of taking turns. There's, they're not, the, you know, aside from Bobby Kimball, the other two, David Page and, and Steve Lukather, aren't the world's greatest singers, but they make it work. They're not bad singers. Yeah. Uh, but, but I kind of like that it's this group of people that all take turns. I think that's what also stands out when it comes to them is there's not that distinct lead person. So I mm-hmm. agree, but I also disagree with our friend Mr. Shuey from Rolling Stone when it comes to that.
0: Oh, and one more thing I have to say that Lucafer said, because I think it's pretty amazing, is, yeah, leave it to us to not bow down to the corporate giants, because they were the ultimate corporate rock publication. They had all the power with MTV to make or break us. They shat on us, and they wanted to do a story on us, and we knew it was going to be a hatchet job. I mean, would you put your balls in a wood chipper? Of course not. And I laughed so hard at that last line because it was just a legitimately funny because for a band that's considered corporate arena rock like Toto, it's funny that they gave the middle finger to the biggest rock publication there is, Rolling Stone, and also turned them down at the height of their popularity when you think they would want to do that. But it's also like uh, one of the most punk rock things I could think of because – Given, like I said, the middle finger to the establishment, the authority, and in rock and roll world, what is more of an establishment than Rolling Stone magazine?
1: I'm with you 100%. I, I, I go back to the, the uh, induction ceremony when NWA finally got in, and it mm-hmm. took them way too long, in my opinion, but to get in there. But when they got in, and Ice Cube had that famous quote where he said, rock and roll is not a style of music, it's an attitude. Right? It's this rebellious attitude, and that can take many forms. It can look like Neil Diamond. It can look like N.W.A. It can look like Steve Toto and Steve Lukather. If people don't know Steve Lukather before listening to this, I think based on your quotes that you've shared, Nick, he's going to have a few more fans because he's about as rock and roll as it gets.
0: Oh, yeah, and he's so uncouth and like un. Polish the way he speaks like if you ever watch any of his interviews that he he gives he's just all over the place and he and he's like uncensored it's hilarious
1: He, he he's a loose cannon and even i don't know if you've ever seen the documentary called hired gun or hired guns
0: i've heard of it but never seen it
1: so it's about all these session these musicians that are hired to come in and play on these famous um, musicians' tracks, so you have you know Billy Joel's band, and you've got all these other artists who come in. But Lucather is featured, and he talks about writing the song "Turn Your Love Around," mm-hmm. right? With uh, Jay Graydon, and they interview Graydon and Lucather, and he's talking about a story where he plays the the piano uh, riff on "Turn Your Love Around." That was actually Lucather who came up with that, and Graydon was trying to figure out the chorus or something. And Lucather just goes on record and talks about how. Jay Graydon was on the pot relieving himself and came up with the song title. Like who says that about their best friend, one of their best friends on a <laughs> documentary. That's going to go out to millions of people. I just, it's, it's Lukather. It's all encompassing Lucifer. There's no filter.
0: His autobiography is literally the gospel according to Lucifer. I mean, <laughs> it's like, it got it, it, it. Like, cause when I first saw that title, I was like, what? And then when I started doing more, Uh, reading up on him and toto i'm like okay now this kind of sort of weirdly makes sense
1: yeah it's he's again i love those interviews and i'm a polished by the book human being but i love it i think he's just i think he's just the epitome of rock and roll which i i hope you know people listening have maybe more of an appreciation for the attitude behind uh behind toto now
0: hold the line toto's got attitude
1: That's right. Oh,
0: okay. Um, So there was a lot of tension and chaos in Toto throughout their history. So that caused a lot of lineup changes. Mm -hmm. So what happened, Wes, with these lineup changes? Like Who left the band and how did this affect Toto?
1: Yeah. So, you know, my my kind of um, major knowledge base around Toto is really late 70s and up through the the late 80s. Not so much beyond. But tension wise, you know, when you have that combination of incredible musicians who can all do their own thing, but they're all under one band name, you're bound to have some conflict right even if they all play kind of in the pocket with each other in a rock sense or if they're playing more of an R&B sense when you think about their early days with boss gags like they're bound to have some tension and when you have strong personalities as we've distinguished with at least one person in the band you're you're going to have some tension so i think a lot of this starts the tension starts you know after toto 4 actually has all that success and they win those you know five or six grammys with big hits like Rosanna and Africa, there's a pretty uh, poorly launched tour, follow-up tour to that. And usually after a band has a big release, they're going to they're gonna have this great tour to promote the album, right? So they have this poorly launched tour in 1983 that does not go well and creates some tension. And, you know, in 1984, Bobby Kimball, who Rolling Stone, our friend Mr. Shuey, I'll keep going back to him, referred to as a terrible lead singer he developed some significant drug problems and they fired him because of obviously his lack of sobriety and uh, productivity they brought in singer named dennis frederickson who i believe played on one album that didn't quite work out and then they brought in joseph williams Mm -hmm. who's actually the son of john williams which i didn't know before researching
0: isn't that amazing
1: oh i mean how many again john williams is everywhere right? Throughout American, really pop culture, when you think about all these great musical scores that he created for these iconic movies, right? So his son has actually had a couple of incarnations with the band uh, as a lead singer. And I think ever since then, you've kind of had Joe Williams and Bobby Kimball kind of back and forth, back and forth. But it seems to me like most of their issues have been with their, quote unquote, lead singer mm-hmm. uh, in terms. People leaving the band, and I think Lucather was in. I, I read an interview uh, uh, that he gave uh, where he talked about he thinks there's been 15 or 16 different lineups throughout Toto's history. <laughs> I don't know if we'd see the full band back together again. I think that'd be very difficult to see.
0: I think what's really sad, Wes, is I think there's just as many albums from Toto as there are lead singers. Yeah, isn't that sad?
1: And I know one of their primary, you know, band members did. Did pass away, and that was or two of them. I'm sorry, the Mm -hmm. two of the Porcaro brothers, Mike, who was the bassist, I believe, had ALS and passed away probably ten years ago, I think. And then, and then Jeff uh, died. I think it was was it a drug overdose?
0: No. So Jeff, it's a really fascinating story on how he passed. So he he died at age 38 in 1992, Uh and he died in his backyard. So apparently, he was spraying a -hmm. pesticide in his backyard. And he had like a heart condition, apparently. Yeah. That was, I guess, it's because, against, because like Steve, Lucifer and Mike have other accounts for what, like mm-hmm. their take on it. But apparently, he had like this underlying heart condition they he never really treated. And he was also a heavy smoker. So they yeah. think what happened was he was spraying pesticide without gloves on in his backyard. And he might have had like a cigarette or something. And that's how the, and the pesticide got into his skin but also you know in his blood and then that caused him to pass away yeah because he was announced dead um like before they even got to the hospital apparently
1: yeah and 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 what i mean going back not to i hate to say this but we we've talked about rock history and those that die are are kind of heightening their careers and putting them even more in the spotlight um you think about people in the 27 club hendrix yeah amy Winehouse joplin morrison you go on and on right he died at a relatively young age right 38 is what you said and he played on all those tracks so again when did the guy sleep right but but i think when you talk about and i don't want to downplay the other members of the band because everyone is super talented i think the person that left their stamp on rock and their influence more than any other member is probably jeff with his drumming, yeah. his style. Now, Lukather might come up with a wonderful quote for me if he ever listens to, the, <laughs> to this podcast about his thoughts of me and his guitar playing. You're awesome, Steve. But I think Percaro to see him live, would be such a treat for any rock music fan, not even Toto fans, uh, if he were alive today still.
0: One thing I should mention about um, Jeff's death that was really the controversial aspect of it is when they did like the crooner did like an autopsy, they found traces, small, very small traces of cocaine and they ruled it a death caused by cocaine use. But I know Steve w- said like was so like microscopic or so small that there's no way he could have did that because he said something to the extent that we all did cocaine and hard drugs and No way did he OD from that, from that small level. So that's why I think they think that it's uh, the underlying heart condition and uh, on top of that, having a a lifelong smoking habit that probably attributed to his death. Now, something that I was going to ask you, Wes, is that something that I thought was fascinating is that when Jeff passed away in 1992, ironically, on my birthday – in 1992, December 14th, there was an all-star lineup of musicians that they had like a tribute concert at the LA Amphitheater. Do you know some of the people that played at that show?
1: I heard that they, but I actually didn't have a chance to take a look at it. Who were some of the major, it doesn't surprise me. So sit down
0: does. for some of these names, like it's insane. George Harrison, Eddie Van Halen, Don Henley, Donald Fagan, David Crosby, Boss Hags. Yeah, yeah, that's insane. Like, just getting like, George Harrison <laughs> there yeah. or Eddie Van Halen. That's huge. <laughs> now, something that uh, Toto became famous for in the last few years is their song Africa, which has kind of taken on a life of its own. It's such a weird song in many ways, like lyrically, musically. It's just a very strange song. But Weezer famously covered the song in 2018, and it became this major viral hit that actually became Weezer's first entry onto the Billboard Hot 100 in a decade. And I'm just curious if we could just talk About this because I think it's so Fascinating on so many Levels how Weezer Created the song and And of course Toto's reaction to it
1: When the Teal album came out I think It was 2018 and Mm -hmm. it was all Covers right I loved Weezer Growing up I love the song Africa so When I heard they were doing that I'm like wow this is The best of both worlds coming together Just the way Weezer creates music Even though this was a cover you knew it was going to be A little bit different right I, I I just thought it was stellar. Thinking back to my classes that I teach, even my non-music history classes, we'd be playing you know, Jeopardy with a group of students to review for a test, and I'd always have musical trivia category. Every flippin' kid in there would know Africa, even before the Weezer cover came out. But that just amplified it and put it so, back into pop culture.
0: So do you know the story of how Weezer created Africa, or like why they covered Africa?
1: I, I don't.
0: Oh, so this is fascinating. So I think in 2017, this teenager in Ohio, her name was Mary, and she created a Twitter campaign at Weezer Africa. And she just bombarded with so many tweets about how she wanted Weezer to cover Toto's Africa. And- (laughs) It was so funny because it, she got a lot of traction because it's such a, an insane thing to request almost, but it kind of weirdly makes sense. So she turned around and she kind of like launched this campaign. It took a light on its own. And the drummer of Weezer found the Twitter account, liked it, and commented on it. And then he showed it to River Cuomo's and he was like, sure, we'll do it. Because, you know, it's such a cute story. A teenager wants their band to cover a really famous song for like no reason, really, it seems. And the funniest part of this whole story is that Weezer played a joke on her and because they covered Rosanna first, and they released a cover of that song. And then like a week later, they just quietly dropped their version of Africa. And that made Mary's day and she was excited. And then it became like this life of its own where. I remember the summer of 2018 when that came out and Africa's a song is just everywhere to begin with like it's at grocery stores, pharmacies, the radio, if you listen to 80s or classic rock or whatever, it's always present and it just became like the new don't stop believing where it's like it's just everywhere and i heard that song far too much
1: that year the history of rock and roll class that i teach at the high school the final project for students is to actually do a presentation on a band or artist they think should be in the rock and roll hall of fame and i had a, a young man who was in my class and actually played on my tennis team that i coached he picked weezer because they were newly eligible right around that time for the rock hall and played their cover of africa and And that was the first time I had heard that they were doing a cover of Africa and this whole album of covers. So it was a really fun way for me to learn about that as well. Um, It was really cool.
0: And it kind of weirdly put both bands back in the spotlight in the sense that it solidified Weezer, who are going into their third decade of being an active rock band. And post Pinkerton, I know they're a polarizing band of many, but they're still together and they still make fairly successful music. So I think that that says a lot about them. But it also reestablished Toto's place in popular culture in a weird way. Because if you think about the song Africa for a minute, it's such an abstract song, right? And it's a weird song, lyrics and sonically. I mean, it's about this guy who's homesick about a place he's never been to. (laughs) And he's like this outsider who's looking... Outward and inward, and it doesn't really make sense. And it's about alienation and all this other stuff. So, in a weird way, it speaks to the consciousness of American life and like a fear almost. I don't know. It's just really a fascinating song that took on a life of its own. And it weirdly. Makes sense because like when they wrote the song, they never went to Africa. So like, it's like this, like I'm reimagining of Africa to a place that you've only seen pictures of or stories that you've heard.
1: Yeah. And, and what's interesting is you bring up the point. It's a song that sounds one way, but it's about something else. Yeah. Right. And, and, and that's what's so fascinating about music is I feel like there's three categories of music listeners. You have people that focus on the music itself. Oh, this is a catchy tune. This is so happy, go lucky. And I think a lot of people when it comes to the song Africa are like, oh, this is this really catchy drum beat and hook at the beginning of the song and we're into it but they don't necessarily focus on the lyrics, right? Then you have people that focus on the lyrics, group two, who go, wow, and they discover the things, Nick, that you've just shared, what the song is about. And then you have that third group of people that focus on both. And it's really fascinating, whether I was teaching the rock history class or talking to you or other people about music to see which which group people fall under and why they listen to music, which is really fascinating. The one other song that really jumps out to me in this respect is I think about the song, Every Breath You Take, right? Where everyone thinks it's this beautiful love song. No. And then they listen to it, it's about a stalker. When you look at the, the lyrics and it's one of those things where which camp are you in, right? And everyone interprets music differently. So regardless of what group people are in, I think the drum beat, the hook, just kind of the exotic sounds and the harmonies, and whether it's Rivers Cuomo singing it or the combination of David Page and Bobby Kimball, I think it's that song is just so wonderful.
0: And I think it speaks to the legacy of the song because River Cuomo's and Weezer, it's nothing special. It didn't really add anything. It's just a bare... It's a, almost like an exact copy mm-hmm. of that original... Toto song really and it's just bizarre how that song took on a life of its own after they covered it
1: yeah exactly
0: now speaking of Toto's place in popular culture have Toto's music been featured in any film productions or television shows over the years
1: so I had to do a little bit of research on this one because I think like you said especially in 2018 Africa by weezer was everywhere so I, I and and the same could be said for 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 Toto's version in, in, a, in a whole slew of different areas but it looked like, you know, TV shows such as like Scrubs and Narcos and Girls and Community and amongst others included songs like Africa, Rosanna. A few films have had their music in it, of course. But what I found fascinating, and I didn't even really know this, I've actually never seen this movie either, but was that they provided the music for Dune. didn't know that. And I have still never seen the original. I've heard so much about it. But what was really fascinating to me is not only did they provide the music for the soundtrack for this this cult classic of a film, right? But that they recorded it in conjunction with Brian Eno and <laughs> Daniel Lanois. Is that how you pronounce Lanois? Brian Eno, obviously famously in the early stages of Roxy Music and then goes on to his own solo and production career. And then Daniel Lanois, who I believe is from Canada, is famous for working with U2 on like Joshua Tree, working with Bob Dylan, Peter Gabriel that's a lot of musical talent un, in one studio.
0: Just the very thought of Toto working with not only David Lynch, but Brian Eno, it is yeah. insane to to just think about. And 1984, I mean, like be- literally, could you get a more ironic year, 1984? I know, um, I'm working for it. <laughs> to work on the soundtrack for Dune, because I really didn't know that either and doing the research for this. And I'm like, no way. And then I was like, way i would have loved to see the making of the dune soundtrack with eno oh, yeah. cuz i can't imagine that work and, cause he's working cuz he's worked with like the talking heads and u2 oh, yeah. and so many iconic bands that are like the total opposite of toto i'm just that's it's it's so fascinating to me
1: have you have you seen the film
0: no so that's so funny because i was having a conversation with another friend that we were talking about david lynch earlier in the week mm-hmm. and that's both the movie that we both said we haven't seen by him because like i said like i've seen blue velvet and Eraserhead and magnolia drive not dune because that's kind of like that was like a flop and that kind of was in between like his other movies like elephant man and blue velvet really got to watch it um speaking of songs by toto west something i always ask every guest is if you were to create a mixtape of five to six songs that you think encapsulates their career what songs would you choose and why
1: yeah, so I, you know, this was really fun to just kind of think about this. A lot of my songs here are the kind of major hits, but I think I really picked it more so because of the the variety and I went kind of in chronological order. You know, the first the first song I'd include is from their their initial album and this is All Supply the Love, which I believe was their second track ever that they had on that uh, that they produced as a band and it's very rock. I mean, it's very reminiscent of a classic rock sound from the mid to late 70s, even when punk, as we've talked about, was was making its way into the, dare I say, the mainstream, because I know punk rockers wouldn't like that. I I just I really feel like that demonstrates their rock elements, their vocal harmonies as well. That would be the first song. The second song, which comes right after it on their initial album, is Georgie Porgie, which sounds completely different. And it's this softer, kind of groovy R&B, and this is the one that I felt sounded just like a Boss Gags song. So mm-hmm. pretty pretty amazing to go kind of back and forth. Number three would be Hold the Line, one of their biggest three hits. I feel like it's a great encapsulation of their musicianship. Who doesn't know that iconic keyboard intro, right? (laughs) With hold the line and the powerful guitars. So I feel like it hits the palette of those that like their progressive side of things and those that just want the straight ahead rock. It kind of hits, it checks all the boxes. Uh, The next one is, was actually the song 99. And this was from their second album, Hydra from 1979. And this was mostly instrumental, but I felt like it was again, a unique blend of all of their styles put in one. And I think that's a song that maybe not a lot of everyday listeners of just classic rock are aware of. Africa would be next. We've talked a lot about it. I feel, again, it's a multi-generational hit. And then Rosanna, which would be my last song, we really haven't talked about Rosanna. And for me, it's my favorite. And I feel like it is the most stellar combination of their musicianship and their producing and recording skills uh, compared to any other song they've ever released. Have you ever heard of a gentleman named Rick Beato? Have you ever heard that name? No. So Rick Beato is a guy who is a, a session musician himself, and he deconstructs songs, and he has a YouTube channel, and there is a series he has called What Makes This Song Great?, and he spends about 15 or 20 minutes going through all these. And he's got 100 plus songs that he goes through. But one of them is Rosanna. And he essentially breaks down all of the parts, whether it's the horns, the drums, the bass, the guitar. And he plays a lot of it. If For people listening, if you haven't watched that video, I think it takes your appreciation for Rosanna to a whole new level with just how intricate and amazing the musicianship is. And I think, again, Rosanna, if I had to say, listen to one song by Toto, that's the one.
0: I agree. Rosanna's probably my favorite Toto song too, because it kind of is this melting pot of so many different styles and genres. And you can kind of hear like the jazzy side and the R&B and rock and roll side to them. Like it's kind of like this conglomerate of different things. And it's like West Side Story esque that music video too. If you if you guys watch it, because there's a red dress and there's gray backgrounds, and it's very it's a very wild music video.
1: I I don't remember which poor caro it was. I think it might have been Steve. Didn't they write it about Rosanna Arquette? I think that was the what they said.
0: What they said, but I don't. I I think maybe it was like the name Rosanna. Okay, that happened to be use but i don't know if it's about her per se because i was always that's i think this the assumption because how many other rosannas are really that famous uh, uh, sure. like the first one i always think of is of course rosanna arquette but i think she dated steve picaro at the time yes so i think that it was they couldn't think of another name than they were just like rosanna because i'm i'm a little iffy if that is really about her i think it was just more like the name so yes. Now, Wes, could you also just uh, name a few other songs that maybe are deeper cuts that listeners should check out?
1: From the first album, there's two. There's Child's Anthem, which is the beginning. It's kind of this pump up in your face. first. I mean, it's the first track they released and it sounds like Lido Shuffle. The keyboard that Steve Porcaro plays is almost the same and you can hear, it almost seems like a, dare I say in the sports world, it could be a pump up introduction song when you're getting ready to compete or something. It's, it can be used in all sorts of different facets of life. So that'd be one. There's another one called Manuela Run, which really shows their harmony and piano. I myself, as a as a young man growing up, I took a lot of piano lessons and I play piano. And so I love anything Toto does that features the keys that it's really highlighted on Manuela run along with Bobby Kimball's really great voice that our friend from Rolling Stone thought was terrible apparently. And then a couple other tracks would be like make believe, which is a jazzy piano groove and then waiting for love, which sounds very similar in my mind to the groove and turn your love around. Well, it's the same core people writing that song. Uh, So those would be kind of my deep cuts uh, for those that want to go, little deeper into Toto.
0: Great. A few songs that I'll throw out there for listeners to look at, I'm going to only add two, is I Won't Hold You Back, which was from Toto 4. And that has Timothy B. Schmidt of the Eagles on back in vocals during the chorus part of that song. I just think that that's a really good power ballad. And the other one that I really liked was Holy Hannah from Isolation.
1: I, I did forget. I did have one more written down. I forgot here, my friend. There was one that was a number 11 on the charts. It wasn't on my main list, but the song I'll Be Over You, if you're really into, and I mean this lovingly, 80s cheese when it comes to some soft rock that's that's a great song. I'll Be Over You from 1986.
0: I hate to say it, Wes. Toto is all about cheesy soft rock.
1: Yes, <laughs> they are. And we say that lovingly. But it was number 11 on the charts, so fans loved it.
0: And we also forgot Pamela, which was like their last really big hit in like 88, I believe.
1: It was, I was going to, yeah, I was going to bring that up eventually, but you're right. That was another, that was kind of it for their, their, their chart toppers.
0: Yeah. That was like, now we're going to go on and do touring for the next 30 years. Yeah. I mean, of course record stuff, but you know, sure. yeah, that, that was kind of like the, the bookend to their, at least the peak of their popularity, at least at a mainstream level. Um, we talked about this before, um, Toto were not liked by critics and they're kind of despised by critics and historians. We could all agree on that, right? But do do Toto appear on any best of lists or greatest lists? Because I think that's a good barometer to know an artist's legacy is if they're on any of those kind of best of lists.
1: I, I looked a bit for it. I would highly doubt that on any of Rolling Stone's greatest lists, they probably were on there. Um,
0: The Velveeta guy? Come on.
1: Yeah, I, I, I doubt it. Again, I think if you were to ask musicians entrenched in the industry, would it to create a list of the greatest albums or songs, I think you might see more of them on there. I think you might see... Toto and Toto Four on there, more likely Toto Four, but I highly doubt they're on the best of or greatest. Did you find any?
0: Honestly, didn't, and I'm not shocked.
1: But again, they're musicians, musicians, and even though they didn't have a lot of critical acclaim, we definitely see their fans. Love, I mean, they, they had a lot of fans. I mean, you look at their four kind of major albums, and again. You know, Toto, the first album, was was two-time platinum album. It was number nine on the charts. Hydra, their second one, was gold, a gold album, you know, number 37. Uh, and then Toto 4 was three-time platinum and number four on the charts. So, obviously, they had a lot of commercial success, right? Oh, no, definitely. And, and, you know, Hold the Line, I mean, they had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Eight. They had ten, you know, top... 50 hits, uh, yeah. which there are some bands who are in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or artists that don't have any songs on there. So I don't think you can deny their commercial success, especially with songs like "Hold the Line," "Rosanna," "Africa," and "Your Beloved Pamela," which hit number 22 in 1988.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh, Pamela. Now, you, you mentioned that they were great musicians. They are actually inducted into the Musician's Hall of Fame, which I believe is in Nashville. And they were inducted in the class of 2009. Now, their Hall of Fame is kind of weird because they started their inaugural class in 2007. Mm-hmm. But then they kind of did every year. and Then they stopped. And then they did 2014 and then 2016 and 2019. So it, they have a very up and down history from from what I see, but they are in that Hall of Fame, and we could talk a little bit about some of the awards that Toto won because they did win major awards, and we of course talked about their Grammy wins. They even their debut album for the the, the first uh, self titled album won Producer of the Year.
1: It did, yeah. It would. I keep going back to our friend Mr. Shuey, but it would make him proud that they won that Grammy. But I think they were nominated, according to my calculations, for about eleven. Grammys, they were
0: nominated I- for Best New Artist. Yeah, but I think they also lost to Taste of Honey. Oh boy! Um, no, they're good. I guess they had the Boogie Yogi Yogi disco yeah. song, but it, the 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 nominees were like the Cars, Elvis Costello, Chris Ria, and Toto. And the oh, Taste of Honey bird. wins. It's so yeah. funny. But
1: but they um, but, but ele- I think eleven nominations in total, and then I think they won six over yeah. the course of their career, most of them coming from Toto 4, right? Yeah. I mean, Record of the Year, Vocal Performance, Album of the Year, and I looked up who they beat in the Album of the Year category. John Mount Cougar Mellencamp's American Fool, uh, The Nylon Curtain by Billy Joel, Tug of War by Lukather's buddy Paul McCartney, and The Nightfly by Donald Fagan. Those are some very accomplished artists who they beat in that album of the year category
0: and they worked with like two of them because of course seeley dan with pretzel logic and other albums but Mm -hmm. paul mccartney on the girl is mine for thriller
1: Yeah, yeah exactly and really cool to see a band like toto who critics were ripping to shreds obviously getting internal support and praise obviously from musicians and then when you look at after the next year Thriller won all those awards and they were associated with Thriller and then you also mentioned Nick Lukather's association with George Benson and turn your love around so a whole slew of of awards in the early 80s for band members
0: we were talking about their album of, of the year win the next year Thriller won yeah. so it's they were like still in the consciousness in a weird way because like of course C. Jones and Michael Jackson worked on thriller it's like the best selling album of all times so these guys are all over popular music and i think that on their website i don't know if you know this west they claim that there's some study or whatever that 95 percent of the world's population has heard a member of toto play on at least one song with or without toto which is kind of insane but it's kind of true like i can believe that especially just on thriller alone
1: yeah Again, I don't think you can write about the history of popular music, or especially rock and roll, in the mid to late 70s, throughout the 80s, without including Toto and their members, because of that very fact that you mentioned, that that 95% mark.
0: Definitely. I think that that's their like badge of honor, in a way. Now, we talked a little bit about this, but if you were to make a case for Toto to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, how would you present your case?
1: Well, it's real interesting. You mentioned the at the At the beginning of the podcast about the project that you're co-heading up that I'm a part of and the fact that I've been an advocate for Toto. Um, I would, I would make a couple of points if I were in that room in, in New York making the case for nomination. I look at it and I think the biggest knock on Toto is that their career output as a band is seen as more minimal because it is that kind of four-album stretch when you really think about it. But you also look at bands like the Sex Pistols who had essentially one album, and you look at their influence being important. Therein, in other bands having a minimal output. But again, I think for Toto, the four-album stretch plus the studio musician work before they formed their band, during and then as members came and left the band, I actually feel like it. their case is stronger to be in a separate category, like the musical excellence category.
0: That's actually, personally, in my opinion, I think Toto doesn't have what it takes to be in as performers because I think they lack, as a band, the influence and impact that you often look for mm-hmm. in a performer inductee, at least from my perspective but they have an excellent case as session musicians. I mean, just that statistic I threw out that 95% of the world's population have heard someone from Toto play a song or on a song is hugely important. And I think that especially now you're in like the HBO era of the rock and roll of fame, I mean, Toto is a household name. And I think like if you were at a ceremony and they inducted Picardo and Lucifer either while they're alive or posthumously, you know that the audience would love a version of it africa or rosanna live like that would be amazing
1: Oh, for sure. And, you know, what's really interesting is this year with the the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, they really changed the parameters a bit of who they included for musical excellence, didn't they? And, yeah. uh And for early influence and all those other, you know, I, I think it was this year you had Randy Rhodes, correct? Yeah. You had LL Cool J, and then you had Billy Preston. Am I correct on those three for musical excellence? You are. Yeah. And I think they would be very similar in case in point, in my mind, kind of what Billy Preston did. Now, obviously, different era, different style of music, but Billy Preston had some major hits on his own. But before he became a real reputable solo artist, he was working with the Beatles. He played on all this music by other artists while he were he was creating his own music. So that really seems like a similar trajectory to Toto in my mind.
0: I also look at it like Leon Russell. How Leon Russell was like this piano player and songwriter, had a whole career almost before he established his own performing career. And even he was the first musical excellence inductee into the Rock Hall. I just think that they have a stronger case for musical excellence than performers, but it's hard because you need the support of committee members. And a lot of these committee members worked for, say, Rolling Stone or music writers or historians, and they probably look down on Toto.
1: Yeah, it's it's unfortunate. I think kind of the main three points I would make in a musical excellence argument would no- be, number one, the respect, the talent, that they're musicians, musicians. You look at all of the connections they have, right? We've gone round mm-hmm. and round in the last hour and a half talking about that. Number two, I'm going to label that phrase again. They're the wrecking crew of the 70s and 80s. Here's what's even more fascinating about that. You think about the wrecking crew of the 60s, you know, you have Hal Blaine and Earl Palmer. You've got Leon Russell and a few others of of that wrecking crew that are in the Hall of Fame. You have people like Carol Kay and Glenn Campbell, who sure as hell should be in there. And I hope they get in soon because they deserve to be in there. But that's a group of like 30 to 40 people. Toto, as the wrecking crew of the 70s and 80s, that was a group that came from six people, which is even more fascinating. I'm not downplaying the wrecking crew of the 60s because they should be in. But that's even more of an amazing achievement that all of that work was done by a smaller group of people. You'd think a bigger group would reach a wider amount of artists. But that's not the case. And, and then my, my last argument would be when it comes to sports, when it comes to the rock hall, if you cannot write the history of that era or that genre of music or that sport without including a certain name, and in this case, Toto, they need to be in. So whether it's as a, a, a band and, and I as a performer, and I agree with you, Nick, I think more as a musical excellence category that has it written all over them. I think you can't include and talk about rock and roll in the mid to late 70s throughout the 80s without including them. And and I if I was the all-encompassing rock hall god, I would put in the whole band. I wouldn't just put in the, the three main guys that played on everything because of the fact that some of those artists like Steve Porcaro Who was another keyboard player? He played on a lot of music too, but doesn't necessarily get the credit that Paige, Jeff Borcarl, and Luca Thur get.
0: I think it's also interesting that they played on a who's who of Hall of Famers, like to the point that you're just, it's more mind boggling that they're not in. Like, and don't get me started on Carol Kay and Glenn Campbell, because that's like a travesty it's like we're in the year 2021 and they're still not in oh my god like and it's about, ridiculous and,
1: and how about too the other guy that doesn't get enough credit tommy tedesco is a guitar player from that re- early wrecking crew that that yeah. guy was all over everything and and probably might have been i mean glenn campbell was a, a freak of nature because he didn't know how to read music he just would play which was mm-hmm. exceptional but tedesco was probably even a more technically gifted guitar player than campbell which is insane because campbell was a genius so i i i just again i think first we i mean not to do this chronologically but you get in the the wrecking crew those other members and then toto as a group goes in because they all had an impact on the era whether it was their own work or the session work
0: yeah i think that In Rock Hall, like realistically, I think they would induct the three guys, but they probably should include the entire band. I think that that's what would happen. But I mean, also, they play on Thriller, and that's the the biggest best-selling album of all time. So that's another feather in their cap to make a case for their um, inclusion into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame is that if you play on the biggest record of all time and you were also winning Grammys and on MTV and the radio – with one number two hits simultaneously, you're doing something right exactly. that's how I, I look at it is that the session work is what is their legacy in many ways.
1: you know you have people who aren't who are who are industry people, writers, critics, producers who get to vote. but every living inductee uh, gets to vote as well, correct? Yes, and if they were on a ballot, and you have a lot of artists who are in from those eras, and they were a performer nominee, among that population of voters, among the musicians who are in, I think that they would do quite well. But I don't know if they ever would clear the nomination committee. That's the problem, right? You need an advocate. It, this is what
0: I always tell people with the rock calls, like You need an advocate in the room. So if you don't have an advocate, you're kind of dead in the water.
1: Yeah. And, and and some of the bands, and I'm not knocking bands, but some of the bands that get nominated, I look at them and I go, there's a consensus for them to get on the ballot, but others, I'm going to personally say like Toto or a band like Jethro Tull can't clear the hurdle to get on there when we know when they get on the ballot, they're going to get in right away. So like you said, you need an advocate in the room.
0: Yeah, that's what it boils down to. And if you don't have anyone in that room that's like vouching for that artist, you're not going to get in because the voters can't vote if they're not on a ballot. And then if they're not on a ballot and they have those subcommittees that determine early influence, musical excellence, and non-performer inductees, there's just not any chance for them. I don't know. I think that they should definitely be musical excellence uh, contenders and they're i think they have among the strongest cases for that category and they're like the perfect people for that category but yeah you made some really strong cases for toto and why they should at least be in the hall of fame as um um session musicians um one last question i do want to ask you Wes, and i ask this for every artist is if there's one thing that you could change in their career? what would you change now? This can be anything. This could be like a decision they made. It could be, um, turning down a song. It could be whatever you want it to be.
1: Um, you know, as a teacher, I ask this question a lot, like would you go back and change one thing about a historical event or what would you do? I'm not often on the other end of that question, but when I look at it, I don't think I would change anything because what i respect about them and i admire kind of going back to our conversation with with the luke we'll call him with lucather is the fact that they did what they wanted to do and they didn't care and Ooh. and i respect them for doing that i respect other people from the era like peter gabriel doing his own solo thing it someone said once it's like it's almost like he didn't make music to reach the top of the charts he made his music and the charts came to him and i respect musicians that just do what they want to do and they don't care they don't care what people think they want to make great music so in that case i don't think they should change i wouldn't change anything um bring bring on more 80s cheese and people are gonna like it or they're not but i think more often than not people are gonna like it more pamela more more pamela
0: (laughs) uh I wish they did... Okay, so I'll give you something that I, I wish that they did. I wish they did more soundtrack work. They seem like a perfect vehicle for to work on more movies, and they only did Dune. So I'm really curious if they worked on other soundtracks, like how Mark Knopfler uh, or um, uh, Mark Mothersberg, how they worked on soundtracks, and they kind of built their own career and niche in that. I th- kind of think that Toto, or at least... Their members could have at least have seen the cur- career in the film industry,
1: yeah, I see yeah. that I see that because of their musicianship and because they're so malleable with their musicianship, they could do anything right
0: yeah, and I think you, you and, and to be like a like work in film, you have especially for film music get to kind of know a lot of different styles and adapt to like between genres and, and whatnot, and I think that that would have been a perfect vehicle for them.
1: So what you're really saying is you want more Steve Lukather working with David Lynch. You wanted to see that more often.
0: (laughs) You know, I really wanted them to be on the Blue Velvet soundtrack, but you know, it just didn't work out. But I think it's because that flopped so bad that they were just, nah, we're just going to do what we do. (laughs) (laughs) That's funny. Well, West. Thank you so much for coming on the show and talking about Toto. I really enjoyed our conversation today.
1: Yeah, thank you so much. It was wonderful to, to talk about a band that maybe a lot of people don't know a whole lot about. So hopefully this was enlightening and great to talk with a, a fellow rock hall lover and advocate in you. So thank you for the invitation.
0: Oh, no, it was my honor to talk to you today. Um, and, I, and I appreciate all that you do because you work as an educator too and i just think that that's really incredible and you get to reach students and talk and uh, have them learn about the history of rock and roll and i think that that's um incredible now uh wes where could they uh find you on social media
1: so i am i'm not a huge social media person but i am on facebook so you could i have a, a personal page and uh you can find me there just have my name uh, wesley gabrielson
0: Awesome. Of course, you guys can follow the podcast, the Twitter account, which is at Rockin' Retropod. And you could also follow my personal account at Nick D. Bamback. And of course, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. I would love to hear your guys' feedback, good, bad, whatever it may be. I'm always open to hearing your guys' thoughts on our show and the episodes you enjoyed uh, or the people that have been on. Uh, thank you again, everyone, for listening, and we'll talk to you later.